from Meltem Demers and Jill Carlson. Welcome to What Grinds My Gears, a podcast about the bizarre and buzzworthy happenings in the world of cryptocurrency. Each week, we delve into one key theme and examine it through a broader financial, political, and cultural lens to learn from the past, understand the present, and explore the future. All opinions expressed by Meltem, Jill, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Meltem, Jill, and guests may maintain positions in the currencies, assets, and companies discussed in this podcast. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, the only media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events on crypto, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. All right. Welcome to San Francisco, Melton. Oh, it's so great to be here. Is it? Is it though? Wouldn't You're you here. rather be in Brooklyn on your patio? My patio is amazing. <laughs> I call it the treehouse. Well, I'm very happy to have you here um, because it's a very special day as well. Why? So today is July 1st. It is. Start of H2, second half of the year, where my asset manager's at. <laughs> That's bad. Nerd. Okay. <laughs> July 1st, though, this year marks the date at which we have reached the longest expansionary period in U.S. history. Oh, my gosh, Jill. I'm so excited. <laughs> you should be. What does that you mean? Should be. What that does that mean? That this has been the longest bull market period Woo! in U.S. history. Woo! Party on, baby. Bulls on parade. <laughs> I feel like we need to play Rage Against the Machine and break some stuff. I mean, it's funny to me because I feel like it was yesterday that I was basically graduating into the Great Recession, right? The Great yeah. Financial Crisis. Yeah. That feels like yesterday to me. But in fact, we old. That was 10 years ago. It was actually 11 years ago. That was 11 years ago. 11 years ago. And so this expansionary cycle now has reached the point where it's gone on for over 10 years. The last, the second greatest, longest expansionary cycle in U.S. history was from 1991 to 2001, when then the great tech bubble happened. Yep. Um, and we have now surpassed that. Right. And this time is different, right? This time is different. We're going to keep partying on, keep the keep the central bank rates low. So this time is different are actually the four most dangerous words as an investor. Um, there are a lot of things that go into sort of forming a view on the market. One of the really important things to sort of think about and remember is all investors anchor to the past, right? If you are looking at a particular asset, after all, one of the first things you're going to look at, you're going to go on Google Finance or Yahoo Finance, and you're going to look up the chart. You're going to see the history of that asset. It's 52-week high. It's 52-week low. And so it's interesting to me, we've had 10 years and one month of rising prices. Everything's going up and to the right. And the question is, is it different this time? I hope so. I sure hope so. I don't want to go through another recession. But this is this is what everyone is clinging to right now is this hope that this time is different. And you have everyone from people like Howard Marks, you know, professional seasoned investors talking about this, saying maybe it is different this time. You know, central banks are doing things that they've never done in the past. Um, the, the whole 
cycle looks very different. Inflation hasn't ticked up yet. There are all of these sort of markers that investors and economists tend to look at to say, okay, are we coming up on the end of this cycle? And some of those have emerged, but many of them actually have not yet. And I think this is um, an important thing to think about. The way that Howard Marks, who is one of my favorite investors um, to read, you know, he writes these great memos. The one he wrote was about this phrase, this time is different. And the way he describes it, which I think is a great analogy, is a rocket launching. So if you think of of a rocket launching, it needs a lot of momentum um, to get out of Earth's gravity and break through the atmosphere and go off into space where it can enter into a very different set of conditions. Um, And so the limitation is the gravity around Earth, like these set of rules that we know. Similarly, for investors, investors get moored and anchored in historical prices because that's all we have to go on when we look at an asset. And these God are- forbid we look at fundamentals, right? And what fundamentals? <laughs> Please stop it, Jill. You're being crazy. Uh, Uber is losing two billion a quarter, but don't worry, that's a hundred billion dollar company. YOLO. It's fine. It's fine. Um, but similarly, I think the limitations that past norms put on asset prices create this field of gravity. And you need this force that allows you to blast off into space, or um, as we like to call it on crypto Twitter, going parabolic. Go um, to the moon. Or going to the moon, um, or hyper-Bitcoinization, if you will. But is it different? What does that mean? And so we can talk about this in terms of the overall economy, right? This bull market scenario that we've been in for the last 10 years. Is it different this time? We can talk about this in terms of, again, what central banks are doing, have been doing, keeping the economy effectively on life support. Is that different this time? That's certainly a different set of conditions than we've seen in the past. And then relevant to us, of course, we can also talk about is it different this time with Bitcoin, with altcoins, with the cryptocurrency markets in general? Because, of course, over the last few weeks, we've seen signs of life, I would say, a bit of a run-up. Short, short-lived. Yeah, yeah short-lived, short-lived. Very short-lived. Um, but the bottom line is, right, for things to be truly different, we have to examine, number one, what we know, uh, number two, what history can teach us, and what data, right, about the past can teach us. We have to look back into the past. And then I think we really have to ask ourselves, well, what is actually different and how might that play out? But let's start by talking, you know, let's go macro level before we get into all the weird Bitcoin stuff. Yeah, thank Um, God. Okay. Let's talk about something else. (laughs) Uh, Terrible. Um, Expansion, contraction. So we've talked in episodes in season one about expansionary cycles, contractionary cycles, what that means. But let's just rehash because I think this is important. Yeah. Recap time. Absolutely. So an expansionary cycle, as we mentioned, that is a bull market. Um, Everything is going up and to the right. Let the good times roll. Party on. A contractionary cycle is the inverse, of course. Well, and I think the important thing here, expansion means more money in the system, more assets sloshing around, and a contractionary cycle is less money in the system. Um, As a result, I think during expansionary periods, typically interest rates are low. Central banks and governments want to lower the cost of borrowing to encourage people to borrow, to extend the money supply effectively. And in periods of contraction, they'll lower the interest rate, make it more expensive to borrow, to take money out of the economy, right? So it's kind of operating 
operating these different levers to try to create a desired macroeconomic impact. That's right. And the one thing that I would add to that or maybe amend slightly is that central banks are pulling these levers to try and keep the economy in balance. It's a little bit like if you're familiar with bipolar disorder, it's a a terrible mental illness, right, that involves having these very high highs, these periods of extreme almost mania, mm -hmm. um, and then having these very low lows, these sort of depressive episodes, right, where, you know, maybe you can't get out of bed, whatever it is. And for folks who have bipolar, they need to manage this. And right. they never want to let the highs get too high or the lows get too low. You got to stabilize. You've got to stabilize. Yep. Exactly. And you can think a little bit of the economy as this sort of bipolar. A mental patient. <laughs> Jill is saying will. the economy is a mental patient. But, okay. and, and the central bank's job is, it's important to go over this though, because the central bank's job is to not let the lows get too low, but also to not let the highs get too high. That's what I'm trying to drive at here, because it is actually possible for an expansionary period to go on too long, for us all to party a little too hard. And then the hangover is going to be that much worse the next day. I'm mixing metaphors now. But. Right. But but I think the key question is, um, and the one thing we do know that is not different in my belief, and I don't think will be different this time, is markets operate in cycles, right? It's almost like a wave function. Uh, markets go up and they expand, then they contract and prices fall. Um, and the thing we've seen in particular in assets like Bitcoin is typically each successive low is higher than the prior low. So even though you're operating kind of this oscillating wave pattern, each subsequent low is higher than the prior low. And the pattern, if you smooth the wave, is up and to the right. That's right. And so this is cyclical versus secular, right? Mm -hmm. And the secular is the long-term pattern exactly. over the course of maybe 100 years. And then the cyclical is usually every kind of five to 10 years, again, 10 being the very long end of the range here. We just hit, we just hit the limit. Exactly. Maybe. The limit <laughs> maybe, does not exist. Maybe it is. Well, we have a new limit, right? So we're breaking free of that mooring. And I think um, the key questions we ask ourselves is, does there need to be a recession, right? Is that a truth? Um, can quantitative easing continue unabated and maybe we can just print money forever. And I think, um, you know, the theory, the monetary, modern monetary theory of money is that you can just MMT. print money. You can print Shout money out forever. to our FinTwit followers. MMT, MMT babies. <laughs> Horrible idea. Um, so let's, let's cover though for a second, just what, how monetary policy plays sure. into this. Cause we haven't touched on that really yet. So again, the central banks have these levers as we were talking about. And those levers, as you mentioned, Meltem, are basically the ability to print money or to buy assets from the open market. These are called open market activities. Um, and then also the ability to set interest rates. And so setting interest rates low, again, that's kind of a like let the good times roll yep. thing. It it's makes very money easy cheaper. to take out a loan. Exactly. Setting interest rates higher. That's tightening things. It's literally called tightening. Mm -hmm. um, and that makes money, again, more expensive. And so... Actually, very often what you'll see is in an expansionary period, you'll see the central banks start to tighten things, start to hike interest rates, um, start to uh, reverse maybe some of their open market procedures that they've been engaging in. And then during a contractionary cycle, that's when they slash interest rates. And then for the first time ever in this past contractionary cycle, again, 2008, 2009, we saw this thing called quantitative easing, which, which was- Which is a modern phenomenon. Yeah. 
And that basically what happened there was the Fed more or less started printing money. Well, it's helicopter. Well, it's helicopter money, right? Um, And quantitative easing is not a phenomenon that's unique to the United States. And what's interesting in speaking to economists who were part of the Obama administration who implemented QE, you know, um, when Ben Bernanke and (laughs) uh, his merry merry band of economists were sitting around looking at the U.S. economy saying, what should we do? quantitative easing was probably number six or number seven on the list. It wasn't intuitively the first thing to do, um, but quantitative easing has become a popular tool for central banks. It's been used extensively in a number of European economies by the ECB. And um, the question, right, is, is it different this time? Uh, The yield curve has inverted. So what that means when the yield curve inverts is typically uh, short-term borrowing should be cheaper than long-term borrowing. Because in the short term, there's less volatility around interest rates. When the yield curve inverts, what it means is long-term interest rates actually are lower than short-term interest rates. And so remember, the, the yield curve, it's pricing risk inherently. And so if I were to ask you, Meltem, would you rather loan me money for the next month or for the next 20 years? I would say for the next month because there's I have more confidence in your income in the next month. I know you today. I don't know what's going to happen to you in 20 years. Exactly. But what the market's saying right now is that 20-year debt is actually less risky than the one-month debt. And so it's not quite 20 years in one month, but you get the idea, right? But it it's is 10-year 10, 10 and three-month treasuries have yeah. inverted. Yeah. And so what the market is saying, what investors are saying to the market is we believe that a market crash is imminent. And so we're pricing long-term risk is lower because we believe in the short term there may be some sort of cyclical market event. Um, The other thing that's interesting, the reason why this becomes relevant is environments where the yield curve inverts and where we see all of these traditional signs, investors are looking for when's the next recession coming. Um, What starts to happen is companies and stocks are thriving even though they don't have profits, right? So we made a tongue-in-cheek joke about Uber, but it's real. Tesla is losing money quarter over quarter. Uber's losing money quarter over quarter. Companies that basically get paid to lose money, their stock prices are going up. This is kind of irrational behavior. Um, we don't know anything about irrational markets. Right? Absolutely also, not. <laughs> having been in crypto the last absolutely five years. Absolutely not. Um, and then the, the other thing that starts to happen is we see the rise of growth investing, right? And the clearest sign is actually here in San Francisco, where uh, recently, you know, Salesforce Tower became the tallest building in San Francisco, overtaking a building in the financial district. But growth investing and investing in tech companies um, has continued to consume tons of money, uh, we see it with SoftBank's Vision Fund, the first oh $100 billion dollar growth equity fund, um, completely changed the late stage venture game. But again, people are looking for yield and they continue to believe it's going to be in, in tech. And so to me, these are clear signs that money is really cheap, right? This is an inflation game that people are playing. And um, yeah, it's interesting. People are trying to figure out, is there a crash? And if there is... What's going to be different this time? And a lot of it is this game of trying to read what the Fed is doing, right? There's a lot of talk every month. People will follow the Fed minutes, the FOMC yeah. minutes. There's the Federal uh, Open Market Committee. So these open market operations that we're talking about. And everyone is just trying to guess, is the Fed going to cut? Are they going to hike? What's going on the now, other what's going to happen next? But the other thing and they're trying to do is, so typically when the Fed uh, raises rates or cuts rates, the market reacts. Okay, 
in the last few years in the Fed's done that, the market has not reacted. It has not stopped the cycle. The impact's been minimal and localized. So the question is, is even if the Fed does what it's historically done, this time, will the reaction from the market be different? Well, the other interesting thing here is that depending on what the Fed indicates at these monthly meetings, often the markets can react in in kind of the opposite direction, right? Because one of my friends had this great tweet about this that I'll just read, George Perks. And he says, it's all very simple. Sell stocks because the Fed won't cut rates, because stocks are up, because of the trade war detente, because the Fed is going to cut rates, because global data is weak, because the trade war is ramped up, because the Fed hiked too much. And uh, what he's getting at there is this sort of cycle where you can get wrapped up of like, okay, is good news bad news? Because if you know yeah. data is good, then that means the, the Fed is going to hike rates and so we should sell stocks. Is, is bad news good news? Because if data is bad, then the Fed is going to cut and then stocks are going to go higher. But, but again, what we're trying to do here, and this is the key challenge for investors in all asset classes, whether it's on the macro scale, trying to determine the impact of the broader economy um, as a whole, on the micro asset class or the microcosm in which you operate, right? The question is always, um, how do you determine cause and effect? Yeah. And are the things we've observed in the past true in the future? And that's like reading tea leaves, right? If you've, I'm Turkish. Um, and so there's, fortune tellers um, in every town who will read tea leaves or coffee grounds. Actually. Actually, yeah. And my mom does this. Shout out Denise. What Denise. up? Uh, she'll <laughs> read Turkish coffee grounds. You'll take your cup and you'll flip it over. And in the remnants of your coffee grounds, they'll read fortunes. You're and, reading my tea leaves after this. Oh, baby, I got you. <laughs> I got you. And so what's interesting is this is what investors and economists and market analysts are doing. They're looking at all of these data points. They're looking at what they know. They're combining folklore and folk wisdom with um, economics and observed fact and data science. And they're trying to interpret all of these different things to try to figure out what happens to this particular asset when we take all these factors and combine up them? Up or down, up or down, buy or sell. Buy or sell. Buy, 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 sell, sell, sell. So uh, to, to riff on that just for a second, we talk about these different asset classes. I want to just divide into two rough categories. When I finally kind of figured this out, it made my life of interviewing for Wall Street jobs so much easier because every asset- But did it make it part, better? It didn't make it better <laughs> to make it easier. Um, the Wall Street inter interview process, man, I am so glad I went through it when I did because kids now are starting this like their freshman year. Okay. So here's what's funny. Um, I interviewed for a bunch of iBanking I jobs, but <laughs> the market was in the shitter. And so I didn't want to go into banking. Again, um, we old. <laughs> and then, um, so I was trading in college. I worked on trading desk and I was like, I don't want to be a trader because I saw the people I worked with and they looked grizzled. Um, <laughs> and so I was going to these interviews and I went to this interview uh, with Deloitte, right? And I thought it was for an M&A job. And then they start like laying out this business scenario. They have me read this thing. I'm like, oh, is this like a case interview? I've heard about these. They're like, yes, this is a consulting job. And I was like, cool. <laughs> so I had no prep. <laughs> oh my God. Um, 
And literally all of the other kids in the interview had like done all the case prep and had been practicing for like two years. Oh I literally God. had no idea what I was and doing. And you got the job, right? I think that was more my charm, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> they were like, you're interesting. Oh my God. Okay. Sorry. That was a huge aside on Secretary, interview yeah. processes. Okay. So anyways, um, what did you figure out that made it easier? Okay. Most assets can be divided into one of two categories. Okay. They're either risk assets or flight to quality or flight to safety right. assets. Safe assets, if exactly. you will. Safe haven assets. Okay. And you can generally think about these market cycles, right, as risk on, i.e. expansionary, or risk off, contractionary. And when I say risk on, risk off, that can happen over the course of a day, an hour. That can happen over the course of a 10-year cycle. That can happen over the course of but really, century, but right? what you're getting but, at here is an expansionary cycle. Investors seek to take on risk, right? Exactly. They're on the hunt for alpha. If the market's returning seven percent, if I want to beat the market rate of return, you I need take to take more on risk. more risk than yeah. the market, right? So it's risk on, baby. And in times when the market's contracting, I don't feel so good about taking risk. Risk off. And it's that liquidity episode we did, right? Mm -hmm. If you're a fish out of water and there's no water in sight, what's the only thing you want at any cost? water, right? And so that's when people want to be in deeply liquid assets and low-risk assets when money's expensive and the future is uncertain. So a couple of examples here, yeah. risk asset, Facebook stock, flight to quality asset, gold, risk asset, basically actually any sort of high beta tech stock mm -hmm. you can come up with. Um, and to quality high beta, asset. let's just define what high beta means. Uh, yeah, I can, throw I, back throw back to our Greeks episode. I, I we love got alpha, Greeks. beta. Yeah, and so uh, beta is really the um, correlation between the amount the market moves up or down, and that asset's amount of movement related to the market. So, if Facebook, for example, I'm just pulling this out of my hair. I don't think this is the real number. If Facebook stock has a beta of two. For every 1% move in, say, the S&P 500, Facebook stock should move 2% up yeah. or down, whatever the direction is. Exactly. Um, so again, risk assets, risk on, flight to quality assets, risk off, things like treasury bills, mm -hmm. G10 currencies, gold, again, mm -hmm. is is the really big one. And then there are certain industries, um, utilities, healthcare, pharmaceuticals, things that tend to be cycle prone, things that are essential goods, things that are vital to the functioning of economies tend to be perceived as less risky exactly. because the cash flows are are reliable. Everyone's going to need healthcare, right? No matter what. <laughs> that's that's another That's yeah. a non non Sorry, we're not we're not actually running a politics podcast. No, here. I, that but sounds so terrible. Here's a question that I have, Melton. <laughs> okay, what's the And question? I just want to pose it to you. Yeah. Is Bitcoin a risk asset or a flight to quality asset? Here's the thing. Bitcoin specifically, not crypto. Okay. But here's the one thing we have to keep in mind. And I think this is what people for forget when we talk about investing. Investing is an individual game and it's about your psychology versus the psychology of the market. So for me personally, right, Bitcoin is a risk off asset because I view Bitcoin as a safe haven. However, for the macro broad world. Now what about the market? Though? The market, Bitcoin is a risk on asset. Number one, they don't care about Bitcoin because they have other problems to worry about right now, right? Like the Eurozone's going to hell in a handbasket. China trade war is getting weird. 
Um, all sorts of stuff going on. Like there may be a new war breaking out. There's all sorts of stuff going on. Bitcoin doesn't even- Oh, this even... Iran nonsense? Is that what you're talking about? I don't want to talk about it. Um, <laughs> but Bitcoin doesn't even register on their radar. It's so far out there on the spectrum beyond all other alternatives. They're not really thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And if they are, they're not investing in it directly. They're outsourcing it to another manager in small allocation. Typically, it's you know one of the, the GPs or the portfolio managers taking their own personal money and buying- an exposure with it, they're not buying it with the fun. So in my view, you know, on the macro scale for most investors out there that are managing capital professionally, Bitcoin's not even on the radar. It is a risk on asset and they'll deal with it later when they need to. I would agree with that. What do you you know, most, most institutional fund managers who I've spoken to, if I ask them, oh, do you have any exposure to Bitcoin? They either laugh at me Or they say, oh, yeah, well, you know, through one of some of the venture funds that we have money in, et cetera. And so I think for that reason, because most people's exposure to this is through their riskiest assets, which is LP shares in these venture funds, I think that it gets viewed as this risk asset. Now, I I kind of, I'm going to disagree with you, though, because I think that investing and trading the markets and whatever, it's not just about like what I think. Unless what I think is consensus, I'm going to be wrong in my trades and in my investments, right? And so it actually really matters to me what everyone else views it as. I, in my heart of hearts, absolutely view Bitcoin as a hedge, as a risk-off trade. I mean, part of the reason why I want to own Bitcoin Mm -hmm. is in the event that the world goes to hell in a handbasket, that we all get forced into using LibraCoin and PayPal, and I'm at risk of being deplatformed, I want to have Bitcoin. That is a fundamentally like risk-off trade for sure. But the world but that's not how the world sees no, it. No, the world doesn't share that belief. And despite the best efforts of the Bitcoin community to um, sort of laugh at the gold community, let's face reality here. Bitcoin is, as of today, a $200 billion asset class. Okay, Apple has more free cash on their balance sheet than the entire Bitcoin market. They could just buy it up. Okay, gold is a $7 trillion asset class. And so I think in terms of relative size, the other issue here is sizing. And we'll get into this when we talk a little bit about how institutions invest. But if I'm managing $30 billion, $40 billion in a portfolio, and I can't even buy, you know, $10 $10 million of Bitcoin without moving the market materially, without 5 to 10% slippage, that's not an asset that is risk off. That is a highly risk on asset because the liquidity, liquidity for me to move exactly. in these markets in size just isn't there. And I think that's the other factor you can't forget is what makes something risky or not. Part of it is liquidity, your ability mm-hmm. to move into and out of that asset at or near the price that you want to be at or got in at, right? And so the challenge with Bitcoin is, um, and we've seen this in the market, right? One event can totally decimate the market. You see these massive candles where, you know, over the weekend, (laughs) this weekend, the price dropped $2,000 or 15% in the blink of an eye. That was just embarrassing. Right. And it was small order. It was was because like Joe Lubin sold like $10,000 worth of Bitcoin or something. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know if that's what it was, but I think again, I'm exaggerating in all directions. Um, but I think again, this is is you know for Bitcoiners who are already indoctrinated, uh, like you and I are. We drank the Kool Aid, which is the red pill. 
it's risk off because we have certain views of the world. But I think for the macro sort of environment and for the average person you talk to, they don't care about Bitcoin. They don't view it as an investable asset at all. It's some weird fringe thing that people on the internet do. They're not interested. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to buy gold. Well, so, okay, I w- this is one more thing I want to address on the Bitcoin gold parallel, yeah. which it for many people I speak to sort of outside of the crypto community, the crypto world, this is kind of where the penny drops for them of like, oh, I get it, which is the capped supply, right? That to me is a huge differentiator of Bitcoin from every other altcoin. That to me is one of the big things that makes Bitcoin this risk-off trade. Mm-hmm. Scarcity. Scarcity, exactly. Because the nice thing there is that it hedges you in a lot of different directions. And specifically, it hedges you if inflation starts to tick up, which people have been sort of wondering why inflation has not started to tick up as we Because again, this time approach. it's different, Shell. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and Howard Marks actually had a great sentence or two on this of like inflation is just this kind of funny beast, right? And people wonder where it comes from. People wonder why it's it hasn't manifested itself yet back in the 70s when the United States was experiencing double-digit inflation. Like there still is not a great understanding of sort of what happened there. But in my view, one of the things that impacts inflation is real wages, right? And so there, again, if we think about the ways people look at the economy, um, in reality, people's wages have not gone up, right? And actually over the last 30 years, PPP or purchasing power parity, which is basically the basket of goods I can buy with a set amount of money, um, purchasing power parity has gone down. Meaning if I earn a median income in the United States, I can today afford less than I could afford 30 years ago. And I think part of the challenge here is, and this is a real problem, particularly for people in our generation, um, and this is where Bitcoin, again, because it's deflationary, becomes Mm -hmm. interesting, is if um, I'm earning less money, if I can afford less, if I am, you know, 30 years old and I'm living in San Francisco and I have $200,000 of student debt and the average price of a home here is $2 million, there's no way I will own a home in the next five years. I was going to say in San Francisco, it feels like your purchasing power parity changes on a monthly basis. Well, it depends on the number of tech IPOs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, again, this is this is the big question. And so I don't think you can ignore the macro environment when you're looking at Bitcoin. I don't think you can inf- ignore the individual sort of biases and the lens that the person looking at the opportunity is using. But on the macro scale, Bitcoin is definitely, definitely um, a risk on asset. I would agree with that. And I think, again, you know, we've moved now from what I do think is different this time. Let's touch on that. Yeah. Bitcoin is an asset class. So Bitcoin has gone from being kind of the butt of every joke um, and being like this thing. Still kind of is. (laughs) Now altcoins are, right? Like Bitcoin's legitimate. Now (laughs) altcoins are the joke. But I think um, in most circles, when you say the word Bitcoin, people generally know what that is. Very different from five years ago. Well, okay. Circles in New York and San Francisco and Berlin and uh, London. No, I would say most places I go to, people n- have at least heard of Bitcoin. They've heard of it. Yes. And their yes. perception of it, I do think perception has changed. 
And it's been legitimized in in some ways. You see it on the news, you see it in the paper, and it's not talked about in the context of Silk Road or money laundering or drugs or illicit crime anymore. It's talked about in the context of finance and technology innovation in the same way that people talk about other technology innovation or other growth asset classes. And so I think uh, from a legitimacy perspective, that's starting to change. But is it an asset class that people think about or want exposure to? Not quite yet. I think there's still a ways to go. That's actually one area where I'll give, for example, Libra some credit, right? Is a lot of people are talking about Libra in the context of this latest Bitcoin price pump, you know, where we went from 7K to 14K over the course of like two weeks very healthy market, right? Totally um, normal. Totally. Yeah. Just normal things. So a lot of people though are talking about Libra in that context of like, oh, Libra is going to be this great on-ramp of all this money flowing into it. Maybe, maybe jury's out. But what I will say is that Libra, I think has helped change the conversation around Bitcoin and around cryptocurrency by creating this narrative, right, more around banking the unbanked, these more kind of like legitimate in the light use I'm cases. I'm sorry, I just um, I have I know, a twitch in a my eye. Reaction. Whenever people say banking the unbanked, again, we'll see. But it's changing the narrative, and that is hugely important in terms of Bitcoin becoming an asset class. But so let's dive into some more of these questions that we have around, is this time different for Bitcoin? Okay. I want to talk about something I saw of all places. It sounds like this grinds your gears. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, um, almost banking the unbanked is probably the most gear grinding phrase for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but the second most interesting thing I saw, um, so Binance, you know, big altcoin exchange, um, They had a tweet, right, after Bitcoin did its crazy rally from 7K to 14K, totally healthy, totally normal. Um, They had this tweet where they had like a circle of candles and they said summoning altcoin season. And historically what's happened, right, and so this is where it actually was different this time. Historically what's happened is whenever wealth flows into Bitcoin, people start to feel good, um, you know, expansion in the crypto market overall, and people start redirecting those gains into altcoins. They're reaching for more and more risk. Exactly. They want more risk. They want more alpha. They're like, okay, Bitcoin already doubled in price this month. I want another 2x. Uh, Altcoins are going to follow. But here's what happened this time. I altcoin showed basically no life. Yeah. Right. And so it's funny. They they got out the uh, the CPR. They were were clear. (laughs) Nothing was happening. And so what's interesting, what is different this time, and I think what we're starting to see is a decoupling um, of flows into Bitcoin from flows into other coins. And there is almost a um, divergence happening where quality assets or perceived quality assets are being separated from crap assets, right? So you'll still have the penny stocks and they'll continue to trade and, you know, they have their own little crazy patterns, but there is a separation where the majority of capital inflow is going into legitimate, established, well-understood sort of branded assets like Bitcoin to start. Then we did see some flow into Ethereum. Um, We saw a handful of other currencies get a little bit of uptick, but no one's buying like the weird number 200 coin, like, you know, what was it last cycle? Pascal coin or like Mona coin or this weird stuff. That's not happening. And I I think that that correlates with another observation of how this time has been different. And when I say this time, I really just mean the last couple of months, right? But it's been very quiet 
there's been very little in the way of like very pumpy marketing schemes, the Ethereum scams, the sort of fake accounts that usually pop up on Twitter. There's been a lot less of that kind of noise. There's been a lot fewer, it feels like, new entrants into the space. And it feels like the price action has been more of just a reallocation maybe within the space or within sort of folks who are already insiders or even institutions well, who are already insiders? What I like to say is in 2019, everyone became a Bitcoin maximalist. So <laughs> when you say that, though, that makes me think, okay, so did all of the altcoiners, was there finally a capitulation where they were like, oh, hell, okay, fine, finally we're going to sell out of our altcoins and get into Bitcoin? I think the Because ish- we didn't really see that. That would have... But I think resulted in a much bigger tank in price of the okay. But if you think about where people are at with these non-Bitcoin assets, right? So in 2017 and 2018, it was a risk-on environment. Everyone was feeling good. Money was being thrown around, and people bought these assets at crazy prices. Then the prices dropped. 95, in some cases, 99.9%. So there are people who are holding assets that are way underwater. And they show some signs of life. But what you forget is these assets are still 85, 87, 89, 90% off their highs. And what most people I talk to who are prolific shitcoiners or like big altcoin bag holders, um, what they say to me is, I'm waiting for the next big pump right? To sell my altcoins into Bitcoin. And I really want to be long Bitcoin. Now, the question is, um, you know, people who are coming into the market, are they people who want these really high risk, illiquid, super unpredictable coins? I don't think so. So do you think that this pump then, this Bitcoin pump was driven by new entrants into the market? No, I think a lot of it was driven by, I mean, there are a lot of people who have analyzed it, right? A lot of it, I think, was driven by printing of tethers, right? So mm-hmm. tether continues to sort of impact. And tether, Nelson, by the way- you engage in the tether FUD. No, 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 but look- I te- feel that my work here is done. No, but tether is a way of expanding the money supply, right? Yeah. It's basically a way of shadow banking uh, the crypto ecosystem. I do think that um, a bunch of people who are already in the community or people who had been sitting on the sidelines for a while felt, um, you know, when prices started to rise from uh, February onward, that it was a good point for entry. And once prices broke kind of the 6,500 level, I think you saw a lot of people piling in. And the thing is, all of the people in this market who are allocating capital, they all talk to one another, Right. And we're constantly talking to one another all day. I'm talking to people at brokerages and trading firms. I'm like, hey, what do you think? Whereas, is it like everyone's looking at the same charts? Everyone's looking at the same data. And so it's not unreasonable that a lot of people felt like, you know, February, March was the time to stop being short and start going long. And so when everyone in the group is engaging in the same behavior, it's not surprising that the tide flipped. Yeah. And I think that the magnitude of the the sort of parabolic rise and then the sharp decline that we saw over the course of last weekend, that goes back to this question of liquidity and sort of sophistication of the market, right? It is the classic sign of an immature market that is still all one way. It's this herd behavior. It's the lemmings going off of the cliff altogether. Well, climbing the cliff and then going off of it. Um, and so I think from that perspective, this time is not different. 
Nothing has changed. Okay, but but here's what is different, right? So when I ask myself this question as an investor, it's really what am I willing to bet on and what are the consequences if I'm wrong? And that cuts both ways, right? So if you look at what happened um, with, with Bitcoin over the last week, right, a lot of people are like, oh, I sold the top, which was around 14000 And then a lot of people were congratulating themselves because they rebought at 11000 or 12000 Okay, where – at 9,000 right now. So that wasn't good job. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for publicizing that. Um, But, but I also think um, what is different here is we're kind of in this weird no man's land, right? Where it kind of could go both ways. A lot of people think the rise from seven to 14 happened way too fast. Fundamentally, very little changed. Okay. There's Nothing changed from 7 to 14. A, a few things had changed, right? There's more positive news. There's more legitimacy, but structurally nothing changed. And the bigger thing is it isn't like all of a sudden some new channel to access digital currencies has suddenly opened no. up. It hasn't, right? And the people who move markets in size, the people who can create a lot of inflows of new capital, they're still not touching this. And they won't for a while. Yeah. No. And that's just a, a reality. The institutions are not here. They are coming, but it's going to be a long process and it's going to be very cautious. It's going to be very skittish. Um, and events like what we saw over the last week are going to make them anxious and uncomfortable. One thing I want to point out is in many ways, the macro environment actually changed over the last few weeks, not in any kind of dramatic way, but it was this very interesting combination where we saw stocks reach all-time highs and also gold start to show signs of life for the first time in years. And that to me is notable just from the perspective that, again, Bitcoin has these kinds of properties, both of gold, but also of risk assets. And so I was starting to look at kind of the correlations there. Now, that's a very short-term observation, of course, but that, again, is something that to me is a bit different. I'm always trying to impose Bitcoin on the macro markets and to try and derive some kind of sense in the fog of war. But but, but the question ultimately is, as an investor, you get paid to manage risk, right? Mm-hmm. And your livelihood depends on your ability to appropriately manage risk, but to also um, use what you know and to use what the market's telling you, these proverbial tea leaves, right, to make the best decisions possible. So if you're reading the tea leaves, right, um, there's two ways you can look at the world. Uh, number one is what's happening within this microcosm. So prices are rising rapidly. There's a bunch of, there was a bunch of self-congratulating and exuberance in the Bitcoin community. There's this big conference in San Francisco. Francisco, where everyone got together and they're like feeling really good about themselves. Everyone was like, it's because of us. It's because of me. Yeah, I held. I held. (laughs) It's like, no, bro. Like, relax. It's okay. (laughs) Take less. Whatever it is, take less. Um, Have a CBD drink. Or give me some. Yeah. No, I don't want to be like that. Have yourself a CBD drink. It's going to be okay. Uh, But but I think there was this sort of irrational exuberance. um, And I think people started to get a little ahead of themselves. They're like, oh, bull season's back. But then, um, you know, the other thing that happened is the macro climate suddenly changed. The world over the course of 72 hours got a lot riskier. Don't forget that the G20 conference happened this Mm -hmm. weekend, right? We're in the midst of a trade war with China and neither side's really budging. We're initiating a trade war with Mexico. We're initiating an actual war with Iran. And so I think there is this this reality that all of a sudden over the last week, the world has gotten 
different. It's gotten riskier, right? There are concerns over what's going to happen with Brexit. There are concerns over the dissolution, the breakdown of the Eurozone. But like, the Fed is going to keep cutting rates, so it's actually all good. But but I think, again, you can't ignore the fact that this time isn't necessarily different because the underlying factors haven't changed. What has changed for the first time since Bitcoin's inception, coincidentally also 10 years and one month ago, right, which coincides with this mm -hmm. market expansion period, is we haven't seen the behavior of Bitcoin in a contractionary economic cycle. Yeah. And so when people start thinking about their overall exposure, right, people have real world costs. We pay our bills in US dollars. If you have a family, if you pay a mortgage, if you have employees, if you have fixed costs that are paid in US dollars and the world around you is changing very rapidly and you're sitting on an asset that's really volatile and carries a lot of inherent market risk, what I think is pretty interesting about that point, though, is let's say we do enter a recessionary spiral. Oh, no. Oh, no. You're talking again about- That's like saying Beetlejuice, Jill. <laughs> Don't say it. Well, okay, Meltem, you're talking about this Bitcoin conference 2019, all of these people who are like, oh, I held, I held, I hodled, whatever. You're like, calm yourself. Mm-hmm. I could imagine a scenario in which in a recession, in a contractionary period, all of those people are still hodling, actually, and making Bitcoin because, again, those of us who are sort of crypto native who've drunk the Kool-Aid, we believe that Bitcoin should be a risk-off asset. But, but hold and on. so if you have a core holder set who aren't selling then suddenly Bitcoin is one of the more resilient assets in a contractionary period. And I could imagine more money pouring into it and paying attention to it okay, as but, a gold alternative. But let's realistically talk about what happens in this scenario, right? So you're a holder, right? And you've been holding your Bitcoin, whether you have 0.1 Bitcoin or, you know, 100 Bitcoin, you've been holding your Bitcoin. And um, all of a sudden, recession, right? So the first thing that happens is you uh, get less consulting gigs or you have less paying clients or God forbid you lose your job. What do you do? Okay. Maybe you have six months of saving to live off, live off of and then you start, you know, running out of savings. What do you do next? Yeah. You tighten your belt. But well, what you are you downsize doing? you? And then what do you do? Well, if you have assets, if you have investments, you sell them. Okay. But what I would push back on there though is if you look at this hodler set, I would argue that probably many of those who are holding Bitcoin have net worth in other places. Okay. So the other thing, there's another metric that's been introduced. Um, there is, obviously, we have on-chain data. And one of the other metrics that in an all-time high over the last few weeks um, was hodl waves. Mm -hmm. And what that is, it's basically a metric that analyzes um, how frequently Bitcoin moved from wallet to wallet. And what we saw over the last few weeks is that ratio hit an all-time high, meaning that on average, uh, people were moving their coins far less frequently. And the average hold period of coins in a wallet was going up which kind of substantiates this idea that more people are not 
holders than net sellers. And I think what did happen, you know, uh, bear market flushes out sellers. And so every time we saw price action over the last few months, people would sell into that price action, which would push the price back down. People were holding maybe some new capital flow in, some more selling, et cetera. And I think we finally got to a point where we ran out of net sellers. We flipped to buy. Um, Every fund I've talked to um, has flipped from being short to now being long, right? Yeah. But macro environment, we can't ignore it. Can. So, I mean, this is this is just a thesis, right? A hypothesis, really, not even a thesis, that in a risk-off environment, Bitcoin will hold. And we might even see inflows into it, despite it being, as we said, a but risk with, asset. With what money, Jill? <laughs> the same money that's going to be flowing into gold in a risk-off environment. Okay. I don't believe that will happen on a macro scale. But I think we'll that- see. Okay. But here are the <laughs> things that we do know are dif- different. Um, the economic environment in which we're operating is different. And we've never seen Bitcoin's behavior in a period of macroeconomic contraction. Yeah. So that, I think, is something new that I'll be interested in. And we'll see, is it risk on, is it risk off? And it actually may oscillate depending on the type of risk. I think yeah. in periods of political risk, it may be a risk off asset. In periods of um, economic risk um, or regulatory sort of like risk oh, anxiety, yeah, right? The the riskiness of the asset can sort of change mm-hmm. depending on its status. Um, what hasn't changed? There's no clearer regulatory scenario. Yeah, speaking of regulation. It's still a clusterfuck. If anything, it's worse. It is In worse. the United States. It is. I mean, the CFTC has issued um, licenses. So notably Ledger X, after five years of working on this, um, got approved by the CFTC, although that news was a little misreported, but go you. Arisex, um, also mm-hmm. notable, um, they've been working with TD Ameritrade. And then uh, backed physically settled futures are about to go into their test phase um, in two weeks. I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, we're seeing record volumes in the CME cash settled futures product. BitMEX, uh, which is the leading Bitcoin derivatives exchange, um, for the first time crossed a trillion dollars in traded volume in a 365-day period, which is a big milestone. Um, But from a regulatory perspective, you know, things are not really clear. The SEC is not moving applications forward. Um, They called for a halt on developing Libra. That's right. Uh, What's his name? We have this whole kick nonsense going on. The senator that, like, asked to stop the crypto. Yeah, Representative Sherman still wants to stop the cryptocurrency. Um, that I think was very bullish actually for Bitcoin. But either but. way, it hasn't changed, right? So that's not different. Um, institutional capital, as we've touched on, it is and isn't different. The institutions are coming. The institutions are not yet coming. Look, there is more legitimacy and validation, right? So mm-hmm. uh, Libra, um, JP Morgan coin, Goldman Sachs CEO uh, David Solomon now talking about potentially Goldman coin. Henry Kravis, the legendary um, investor and one of the partners at KKR, which is a well-known PE and investment firm, um, is an LP in a crypto fund that one of his former employees is running. And he was talking about in that press release, you know, why he feels Bitcoin's a great investment. So people are coming out of the woodwork and legitimizing the asset class, whether it's institutions, fabled investors, um, Real Vision TV, which is where old pal sort of finance mm-hmm. news specialist station did a whole two-week series. Um, I got the privilege of, of being in that. But, Heck yeah, tune in. But I, I mean, right here. And these things are all legitimizing, right? People are watching this, reading this, et cetera. But the market is still no more mature. Exactly. The market is way too small. Um, the other thing that's interesting is 
who are these inflows coming from? I think it continues to be a retail game. I think it continues to be a high net worth um, accredited investor game. I think there's a little bit of family office participation, but there certainly is not, you know, there are no asset managers that are buying it. There are no wealth managers that are buying it. Um, And at the end of the day, the, the market's just way too tiny. All right. So to start to wrap up here, we never do this, but I'm going to say we should do this today. Uh Uh-oh. No. What is the low and what is the high that Bitcoin is going to see before the start of 2020 in the rest of this year? Gun to your head. We do not give a financial advice. Not to you, anyway. Yeah. I mean, I think price targets are tricky in the words of, again- Don't evade the question. Just answer the question. Okay. So if I were answering this question at any other time, I would say I'll give a price but not a date. I'll give a date, but not a price. Yes, no, no date, but before the end of the year. Look, I think I could see um, Bitcoin retracing back to the $6,000 range, which is where it's sort of evened out before this first run up. Um, but I also think we should we could see Bitcoin pa- pass its prior highs. Um, I think, you know, it's fairly unlikely that Bitcoin would go over 20,000. But again, there are all of these exogenous factors that we can't control. So 6K and 20,000. Yeah, I think that's a range um, over it. which I have like 90% confidence. That's so close to what my range is. What's your range? Be. I'm going to say 6,500 as the low. Okay. I think we'll hit that again, though. I yeah, do. I, I think so. As well. I, I feel confident that we will see 6,500 again. I was going to say 20K is the high. I guess just to tighten up your market a little bit, I would say maybe 18K. Damn you, Joe. I think. But what's your confidence on that, right? Because a, a range is no good. I would give no it 90. I would give it 90% 90? Okay. confidence interval. And look. I make tighter markets than Meltem. Let it, <laughs> let it go down in history. <laughs> Whatever, Jill. Um, but look, here's, here's what is different. Um, we don't know what's going to happen because we've never been in a contractionary macroeconomic period with Bitcoin. And we're still not. We're not yet, but we may be, right? Um, here's what we do know is true and is not different. Markets are cyclical. Um Bitcoin is going to continue to be cyclical. It's going to continue to oscillate. Um we hope that the pattern, you know, continues to be up and to the right when you zoom out, but it may not be. There are no guarantees. And what I always say is like long-term, very long, long-term, way, way, way zoomed out, Bitcoin's either a zero or it's a whole lot more than zero. And there's really not much in between. It feels very binary. It is binary, right? That's So keep playing the game. That's what risky assets are about. Um, but here's what I am watching for. Here's what I'm excited about. The best thing that could happen to Bitcoin is everyone obsesses over Libra and Clayton, which is the Korean equivalent, which by the way, like this Libra thing, the Asian uh, tech companies have been doing this for a while. Like it's not that novel. Um, But let's let regulators obsess over these, um, what I call not cryptocurrencies, but digital currencies, right? And Mm -hmm. these like new constructions of really financial products of ETFs that are issued on a blockchain. Let the regulators go and worry about that and leave this Bitcoin thing kind of alone and let it continue to grow and and evolve. Um, And let them go do that for a while. That's probably the best thing, honestly. And I think that in the course of that, Bitcoin will continue to gain legitimacy. And no news is good news. Um, it takes a long time for people's beliefs to change. But I think, you know, finally, five years into really the mass market messaging of, of Bitcoin, the message is starting to change. Uh, the narrative is starting to change. And what our best friend is right now is no news. 
So I'm going to leave it here on this note, which is that I'm going to remain long Bitcoin because of that property that we described, where it can be both a risk on asset and a risk off asset, because I view that as a pretty well hedged trade. I think that if the party continues on, if the good time times keep on rolling, then we'll continue to see money flow into it as a risk trade. And I think that if we contract, well, we got into that already. But the only thing I'll end with is none of this is financial advice. You should never invest no. more money than you're willing to lose. Bitcoin is still a very high risk asset and you should speak to a financial advisor before making And do your own research. Yes, do your own research. But look, um, the party is far from over. The bulls are still running <laughs> in the streets. And at the end of the day, we're still up. Uh, the price has close to tripled in the last six months. H1 is over, done and dusted. Uh, we've almost tripled. And so the question is H2, what do you have in store, baby? Don't forget though, year on year, still that chart is still not looking so hot, but <laughs> we'll leave that for the next episode. All right, Jill. Well, cheers. Cheers. Um, cheers. Oh, you already finished your, I'm out. your CBD drink. Yeah. Cheers to San Francisco. Um, we hope you enjoyed this episode and we will be back soon. Hey, this is Jill and Melton. Thanks for joining us for another week of What Grinds My Gears. We love hearing from you, so please hit us up on Twitter, send us feedback, join the conversation. Follow us on Medium at What Grinds My Gears, where we share a summary of each week's episode, references, reading materials, and of course, memes. Our episodes go live every Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. Eastern time. And if you're a crazy person like us, make sure you subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode and get it in time for your morning commute. Share it with your friends or better yet, share it with your enemies. Thank you so much for listening. We love you and we'll see you next time for What Grinds My Gears.